0: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is going to be hard because I'm going to ask you to imagine for a minute a world without your cell phone, without your iPad, your Wi-Fi, without your television. It's pretty tough considering how much... We use those items each day. Think about what you're left with. And what you're left with is the reading of books. Or you can talk to friends. You can have others read something to you. But if you think about all the time during the day when you're not working, but you're looking at some glowing orb of one source or another, and how much time that would be, you might realize the importance of figures often not talked about in American history, and that's the clergy. Because the person that you're to see, that you're going to read, that you're going to hear is the local minister. And if you're in the Massachusetts colony, you're gonna notice when you go to church how bare it is. It's wood. The minister is going to walk through the door and reach the pulpit. He'll be dressed, not in a fancy coat, not in a purple robe, but in a grave black gown. Somber. Clergy are prominent from the founding of the colonies we know now as the United States of America through to the revolution and into the early debates between the Federalists and the Republicans and into American history. Most prominent among the clergy in early America would be Cotton Mather. The New Englanders are a people of God settled in those which were once the devil's wonders of the Christian religion may be flying from the, the deprivations of Europe to the American strand. When he the heavy curse of God will fall upon those children that make light of their parents. Therein by him, by whatever enjoyments are by God conferred upon us, where lies the relish? Where the sweetness of them? His father's increase mather, very important, in the Massachusetts colony. In fact, has a hand in the government because he's going to be one of the people who are going to have the governor of that Massachusetts colony arrested and sent back to England. And he becomes a bulwark of the independence of the Massachusetts colony. It's going to provide an important precedent for the American Revolution. Cotton Mather goes to Harvard. He becomes assistant preacher for his father then gets his own church. And if you're in Boston at this time, a lot of what you read and what you hear is going to be authored by Mather because he writes something like 300 or 400 books. Not just on religion, but most of them having a religious bent. Little prayer books, some of them. Books just about how to be a good person. One of them is going to reach the hands of a young Ben Franklin, who's working for his brother at this time in the newspaper. It's going to be of great influence to him. And he's going to relate some of the same tales in Mather's books in his Poor Richard's Almanac. Mather will write a giant opus, his big work, Magna Christi Americanus, which is going to talk about the settlement of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, the story of the pilgrims, up into the time that he's writing, which is the turn of the century, early 1700s. There wasn't a separation of church and state. The two were very connected in the Massachusetts colony. And during the famous Salem witch trials, Mather's going to play a role. At first, he's an advocate for the use of spectral evidence, the idea that someone could be proven a witch by supernatural events, that that the court should consider it. Later, when his role is criticized in the witch trials, and he's very involved in egging them on, he's going to recant some of this or try to reduce his role in advocating the use of spectral evidence. One of the things that's going to happen to Ben Franklin is he's going to run away from his brother, James Franklin, and go to Philadelphia and start a life there, become an important printer. This is slightly a violation of law because Ben Franklin, while he's not a slave per se, he is an indentured servant to his brother and owes his brother by the laws at that time. He, in a sense, runs out on him. When he comes back from Philadelphia, one of the people he's going to visit is Cotton Mather. And there's a story where Cotton Mather brings him into the house. They talk for a little bit. And as he's leaving, Mather says uh, to Ben Franklin, Stoop! Stoop! Franklin didn't quite hear him. Bam! Hits his head on the door jamb. This is where Mather intones, You are young, and you have the world before you. Stoop as you go through it. Franklin would recount later, I often think of Mather's word when I see pride mortified and the misfortunes brought upon people by carrying their heads too high. Mather influenced Franklin in other ways because he was a believer in science. He wrote about the theories of Sir Isaac Newton. He wrote about how plants would grow and spread. But there's another modern controversy that he got himself involved with. The early American colonies are getting hit with a lot of diseases. Ships are coming, arriving, bringing what we now know are new microbes to the people of Boston. They had no idea at the time. They suspected it might be some bad air or bad food or or evil spirits, all of these things. Smallpox hits quite often. And... Cotton Mather is very interested in reading the medical journals, particularly that of the Royal Society of London, and also in contributing to them, because he wants to show that Boston is a significant part of the British Empire and can contribute to the knowledge of people within the empire. It's about 1706 when his church decides that in order to reward him, that they'll provide him with a slave. Mather names him Onesimus. Now, yes, there are slaves, there are also free blacks in the Massachusetts colony this time. Slavery is legal in the Massachusetts all the way up to the time of the American Revolution. I mean, it might work a little different in Massachusetts than it may in the South, uh, but the terms of the deal are the same. Onesimus was not free to go. But Mather does a few things that might separate him from others. He teaches Onesimus how to read and write. And he converts him to Christianity. I mean, that's part of the reason of teaching him how to read and write so that he can read the Bible. And the most important reason we know about Onesimus is from Mather's own diary. And in 1716 or so, he has a conversation with him about the smallpox. And Onesimus tells him that in Africa, it's very common to take a thorn And then take some of the pus from an infected person and injure yourself and put the pus into your own wound. And when you do that, you'll be inoculated from the smallpox. You won't get it again. There's a question as to whether this is the first that Mather's heard of it, or if it's just confirming things that he's heard in other places, in medical journals and the like. But he confirms it by talking to other Africans, free and slave, who are in Boston and find that many of them have a scar because of this practice. By the time Boston gets hit with another smallpox epidemic, early 1720s, Mather has already released Onesimus. See, we don't know a lot about Onesimus, but apparently by earning money somehow, perhaps doing other work for other people, he bought his own freedom. But when the smallpox epidemic once again hits Boston, Mather remembers his conversation with Onesimus, and he has his own son inoculated. He also brings a Dr. Boylston into the process. He's a supporter. He has his own son inoculated as well. But they want to do more than that. See, Mather is an influencer. If he's behind inoculation, he's going to get others. So he writes a journal article and an advertisement in the New England Current. This is the paper of James Franklin, brother of Ben. Ben's working for the paper at this time. Talking about the miracle of inoculation and how it's worked for them. He also goes before the town supervisors and wishes to have the process of inoculation set as the policy of the colony. Well, this starts a month-long debate, including a series of nasty letters in the New England Current. August 14th, 1721, New England Current. This advertisement ought to supersede the fable of the fox who by misadventure losing his tail advises his fellow citizens to part with their tails. And there's even some satire from the Franklin brothers and attacks from them while they're running the paper on the position of Dr. Boylston and Cotton Mather. The debate is so intense going back and forth. Doctors are attacking the reverend for using quack medicine. At one point, a bomb is thrown into Mather's house. So this is a pretty intense debate of the vaxxers and anti-vaxxers of their day. And I mean, you can kind of see it because the last thing you would think is of giving a healthy person a disease in order to prevent them from it. Mm -hmm. Now we know the scientific basis for it. But they had no idea at that time. It just seemed like some kind of magic. And so it fell to someone who was a religious authority, although had an interest in science, who had faith enough to use it rather than a person who was a scientist and could prove it, which it couldn't be proved. And it wouldn't be proved for another two centuries almost. I bring this up because a few weeks ago we talked about vaccines and I was asked about what about Mather's contribution and what about the contribution of a slave to medicine wasn't a complete history of vaccines, but I think that this story is interesting in the context of that because you have both a debate between vaxxers and anti-vaxxers in history and the idea that an African-American contributed to modern medicine. But the influence of people who were held in slavery on modern medicine is not limited to just Onesimuth. James Potter Collins is a white Revolutionary War veteran in South Carolina. He becomes ill in October 1802, and no one's quite sure what his illness is. He consults with a series of regular physicians, and they're all unsuccessful. Finally, the last physician who sees him says, he's a younger person. He says, look, have you ever tried African poison? Or tricking, as he called it. Collins replies, yeah, I have heard of it, but I'm not a believer. Doctor explains, like, look, you know, we medical men reject the doctrine as an absurdity, and it's against our interest to admit it. But a man may be convinced against his own judgment. We have had three cases, exactly the same as yours, failed in the all, and two of the men got perfectly cured very simply by applying to an old African and are now both well and hearty men. So Collins decides to take the doctor's advice, describes this whole thing in his autobiography, and he doesn't even know how to describe it because he's doing something that's so weird for his time, but it's just because of his illness. He says, I I began to consult with this oracle, ephod, or whatever name you might choose to give it, for I have none. I felt a little sullen thinking it would turn out to be mere balderdash. He told, I told him of the the complaint, and he told me if I would stay some 10 or 12 days, he would cure me. Colin's still skeptical. I complied literally with the instructions of this magician or whatever it might be termed, and however strange it may appear to others, I was entirely cured. Slaves brought with them medical practices from Africa, and there were healing people in the Americas. You had slaves who were experts in herbal medicine. And that knowledge did enter the entire society. So using jimson weed for rheumatism, chestnut leaf for asthma, boiling a teacup of logwood chips, using sassafras root kind of as a general blood cleaner, snake root, mayapple, red pepper, pine needles, red oak bark, wintergreen tea, garlic, catnip. Slave healers would make plasters of mustard You take some mustard powder, a little water, spread it on a cloth and put it on the person's chest. Not too long. It's going to be just a few minutes or else it's going to burn. And that's going to help draw blood to the surface and decrease congestion when they have it. Their cure for pneumonia. Physician resources in America are limited. So slave owners would have slaves designated to treat the other slaves when they got sick and they had a certain level of control over their care. That varied from place to place and the temperament of the owner, of course. There were some that didn't believe in any of this. Others did. And we know a lot of this from the WPA interviews in the 30s that were conducted of people who were very old but had been slaves. Joe Hawkins, a former slave, had told his WPA interviewer that doctors didn't treat a person like they do now. They'd bleed you so many minutes while they watched a big watch that they always carried. They bled you for almost any sickness, even against smallpox. Another former slave, uh, Sylvia King, remembered, There weren't many doctors in them times, but there was a closet full of simples, home remedies. And almost all the women, white or black, could go to the woods to get their medicine. Wes Brady, another slave in Texas, told his WPA interviewer, that the white doctor who was hired to care for the slaves on the plantation where he lived would help the slaves because he didn't want to introduce the traditional medicine treatments. That doctor informed the master that a slave was pretty sick. Sometimes they stay in bed three or four days taking flower pills, he said. This was to allow the herbal medicines, which he felt were better anyway, to heal. There are articles that appear in the medical journals throughout the 1800s, not many of them, but a few, where the evidence that Virginia doctors are citing are in the the use of the medicine among their slaves. You have a Dr. R.S. Bailey in 1856 addresses the South Carolina Medical Association, you have, uh, where he's addressing particular remedies as being from an African-American origin. 1850, South Carolina physician Dr. Edward Mitchell writes an article for the Charleston Medical Journal and Review talking about Black Root Mitchell and its role in curing disease. Also, valuable medicinal plants known as yet only to some of our black population. Now, we also know that in 1825, a slave, Jane Minor of Petersburg, was emancipated for her healing ability. She has her own freedom granted, and she earns enough money to free 16 other slaves. 1749, in South Carolina, the legislature frees a slave named Caesar and pays him 100 pounds per year for his life for revealing his cure for poisons and rattlesnake bites. Here's another one. 1729, a slave named Papin is referred to in the Virginia Council Journal as a doctor who was freed for revealing his cures, ordered to remain under the direction of the government until he make a discovery of some other secrets he has for expelling poison and the cure of other diseases. There's a pretty big field for the 2016 presidential race, especially among the Republican, Jeff Pataki, Huckabee, Fiorina, Graham, Cruz, Paul, Christie, Walker, Bush, Huckabee, Ben Carson might possibly get Donald Trump in the race. And on the Democratic side, you have Hillary Clinton, Martin O'Malley, and Bernie Sanders now. So it really sounds like it's going to be a year with a lot of people in the race, but You know, most of the commentaries, this is indicative of our times. Perhaps it's something to do with the big money groups. Reading Rick Perlstein's excellent The Invisible Bridge, and thank you to Simon & Schuster for sending that to me. It's a good book about politics in the 70s. It reminded me that in 1976, that was another year where there were many presidential aspirants, particularly on the Democratic side. And that year was kind of post-Watergate. The Congress was looking down at the president, the executive offices, and there was a feeling that, you know, perhaps in 76 one of us could do this better. So there were a number of contenders Frank Church, Henry Scoop Jackson, Mo Udall, Fred Harris, Birch Bayh. They were all from Washington. Robert Byrd. Then you had Jimmy Carter, that time an unknown governor of Georgia. Sergeant Shriver, George Wallace, Terry Sanford, North Carolina. Hubert Humphrey, he didn't officially run, but He did end up winning a few primaries anyway. And lurking in the background at all time was Ted Kennedy, talked up by party officials, even if he wasn't officially running, ready to step in perhaps if somebody big took a fall. These guys were small enough that Jimmy Carter was able to rise from the pack and win enough. But there were nearly 10 and perhaps as many as 13 viable people in that race. GOP side only had two combatants. Ford and Reagan, who were in the primaries. But if you go to the speculative candidates that the media was talking about, you'd have to mention Charles Percy, Maryland Senator Charles Mathias and former Treasury Secretary and Texas Governor John Connolly as well, even though they didn't jump in the way Reagan did. Quite a busy time. So while I think there's a lot of candidates, it's not extraordinary and it's not like this has never been done. I still think, after Iowa, after New Hampshire, there's going to be some withdrawals. Michael Ranser writes, I enjoyed the podcast that I downloaded from today, 2011, I think, that described the aborted attempt to retake the hostages in Iran in 1980, as well as the assassination of Admiral Yamamoto during World War II. However, I believe you had a factual error in the Yamamoto portion in which you described him as personally piloting a Japanese Zero at the time of the American attack. I'm pretty sure that's not the case, that instead he was a passenger aboard a G4M bomber, which was shot down by one of the American pilots. Thanks, Michael. Yeah, I do always try to get things right. I think there I was fooled by a little reference that uh, said that Yamamoto had gone out to scout something personally, but should have understood that an admiral of Japan is not going to go alone in a plane. He was on his bomber, and he was a passenger. That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. void, prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti democratic paratroopers into Montana. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. The term bench slap is one that you're hearing a bit more of when a judge doesn't just disagree with a plaintiff, but just lays into him or her. And that happened recently with a Supreme Court case that got two members of the court very angry. Eric Brignac writes, on the fans of My History Can Beat Up Your Politics site on Facebook, Bruce, you've done a fair amount of Supreme Court cast recently, so I thought you might be interested in this recent decision. The opinion is not very noteworthy, but Scalia's concurrence dissent discusses the role of the court. Basically, unlike a lot of people think, the court does not see its job as correcting mistakes. Instead, it sees itself as clarifying the law. In that capacity, it will deny review of many cases in which a party may have been wronged, focusing its limited attention on cases where there are broader issues of law to discuss. Thanks, Eric, and you're absolutely right. There's a quote from a former Chief Justice of the United States, Fred Vinson, to that effect that the Supreme Court is not interested in wrong or right in a case. And that sounds strange to a lot of people. sounds foreign. But there's other ends of the appeal system. You have the federal appeals courts for this purpose. And it's only when those courts are in conflict that the Supreme Court feels it should take up a matter. And there's something else going on. And that is that plaintiff's are very aware of this factor. And so they will style their petitions for cert to try to induce the court to hear their case. Now, court clerks are getting very skilled at detecting this because almost every petition is going to say that two, they're going to find two decisions of federal courts that are in conflict in order to induce the Supreme Court to review With that, we'll get into a little bit into this case, but it also takes a very surprising turn. First of all, you have the case in San Francisco of Teresa Sheehan. She's suffering from mental illness. She lives in a San Francisco group home. Sheehan threatens her social worker when he's attempting to check on her. He becomes concerned that he's a danger to other people or herself, and he calls the police. Let's transport her to a mental health facility for a 72-hour involuntary commitment. See what we get. The two police officers arrive. They enter Sheehan's room without a warrant to take her into custody. Sheehan grabs a knife and threatens to kill the officers. They withdraw outside her room. They call for backup, but they don't wait for the backup to arrive. Instead, they come back in. Sheehan again threatens the officers with a knife, and they shoot her several times. She doesn't die. She's injured. Sheehan now sues the officers, the city, for violations of her Fourth Amendment right to be free from warrantless searches and seizures and violations of the Americans with Disabilities Act. The district court throws it out. The defendants are police officers. They're doing their job. She doesn't have a case. Sheehan appeals. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit held that there are triable issues for material fact regarding whether the officer's second entry into Sheehan's room was reasonable, whether the officers failed to reasonably accommodate Sheehan's disability, mental illness, as required by the Americans with Disabilities Act. But the odd thing that happens is San Francisco appeals, it goes all the way to the Supreme Court, the odd thing that happens is that that when it gets to the Supreme Court, San Francisco only argues that, look, the, the... The police officers have a right to qualified immunity. You know, they're doing their jobs, and yet it has to be a very unreasonable violation of constitutional rights for them to have done anything wrong. But they decide not to argue the second fact, which is that the Americans with Disabilities Act, or ADA, requires cops to accommodate mentally disabled people during police encounters. doesn't show up at all in their brief for the case. Justice Antonin Scalia and Justice Elena Kagan accused San Francisco in a dissent of playing the court for a fool. Imagine our surprise then when the petitioner's principal brief, reply brief, and oral argument had nary a word to say about the subject. Instead, petitioners bluntly announced in their principal brief that they do not assert that the actions of individual police officers are never subject to scrutiny under Title II and proclaim that the only ADA issue here is what to requires of individual officers who are facing an armed and dangerous suspect. We are thus deprived of the opportunity to consider the second question. Scalia alleges that they used a bait-and-switch tactic here. You said you were coming to the court to argue for these two things. When you get here, you only argue one. This should be dismissed, and we shouldn't be granting any decision whatsoever. The seven other justices at least go as far as to hear the first point. Why come to uh, the Supreme Court and only make half your argument? Well, there's some politics behind us. It appears that as soon as San Francisco appeals the case to the Supreme Court, civil rights groups started applying some political pressure to Mayor Ed Lee, city attorney Dennis Herrera, to give the case up. And disability advocates, too. They're saying as long as the ADA is there and police officers fear that the ADA may require them to accommodate in a special way people who are mentally ill, they have a strong incentive to create special protocols for suspects who might be seemingly violent, acting under the influence of their disability. But if the court guts that portion of the ADA and says it doesn't apply here, officers would have little motivation to do it. That's their position. San Francisco, in between appealing the case and the day in court, buys that argument, decides to drop that portion of the case. This isn't the first time. Apparently, Washington State was also convinced that they could have overruled a vital ADA decision from 1999. The 1999 case was decided with Justice a, just a Sandra Day O'Connor in the majority. As Slate Magazine said, no progressive wants a Alito anywhere near a civil rights case. I find that historically interesting that you now have cases where we're no longer looking for the steps of the Supreme Court for justice. In fact, we're trying, in some cases, particularly if it's a civil rights issue, there's groups trying to do everything but get to the Supreme Court. Quite a turn since the 1950s and 60s, I believe. You know, you think about the prominent families in American politics, the Adamses, the Kennedys. You have to add the Bush family to this if we're going to have a third possible contender for the presidency. But one family you don't hear much of, and it's surprising, is the Lincolns, right? And so I got this question, who are the still-living, direct descendants of Abraham Lincoln? And I don't think it's something that's commonly known. but Sadly, with just one living son, Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln's eldest son, Robert, living to full adulthood, there is not much of a family tree there to go on. One son, Edward, died in youth. Willie died in the White House. Tad Lincoln died when he was 18, after Lincoln's death. Real family tragedy. But Robert, his eldest son, would live into the 1920s. Robert Lincoln would live long enough to dedicate the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. He had three children, and they had three grandchildren total. At first, Robert dabbled in politics, and he did serve in a couple of administrations, but it was not enough for him, and he, he actually preferred being in business, and he was the president of a railroad. He protected the family name. He was very involved in discouraging, unflattering books about his father and wrote off any of Lincoln's former friends who had bad things to say about him after his death. And he would even use his political influence, recommending to presidents that they not appoint people who had said something bad. So Robert Lincoln marries Mary Harlan, has three children, Mary, Jesse, and a son, Abraham II. One of those daughters, Jesse, marries Warren Wallace Beckwith, and bears a daughter, Mary Lincoln-Beckwith, and a son, Robert Todd Lincoln-Beckwith. Now, Robert Todd Lincoln-Beckwith dies in 1986, and as far as it's really established, the Lincoln family tree ends right there, because Robert Todd Lincoln-Beckwith had no children with his wife, Hazel Holland Wilson. But there's a little more to the story. Perhaps, or perhaps not. We really don't know. Because Robert Todd Lincoln Beckwith, when he was 63, marries Anne-Marie Hoffman, a 27-year-old German woman. Next year, she gives birth to a son. But it's complicated because they get divorced. Beckwith claims he had a vasectomy. The doctor testifies at a trial. Divorce proceedings begin. And by the time the boy Timothy, who his mother calls Timothy Lincoln Beckwith, turns seven, court trial had begun to disprove this lineage. So the official court record in 76, the District of Columbia Superior Court, grants a divorce and rules that the child is not Robert Todd Lincoln Beckwith's, that the child is the product of an adulterous relationship. So in 1985, when Beckwith dies, there's three charities that are to inherit $3 million family fortune. The American Red Cross, Iowa Wesleyan College, and the First Church of Christ Scientist. In order to settle things quickly, they make an offer, and apparently, according to a Slate magazine article, offer 17-year-old Timothy Beckwith $1 million. So he has received some of the Lincoln family fortune, even if it's not been established that he is an heir. I don't do interviews, said Timothy Lincoln Beckwith in 2012. Let the past be the past. And so it is. I want to thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. If you like the program, please consider donating. There's a donate button at www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics, And do tell someone else if you enjoy this program. Thanks for listening.